Good morning. Welcome to the Sunday that time forgot. All right. So uh, for some of you who are typically those who attend the 8.30 worship hour, this is perhaps the best time change Sunday you've ever experienced. And for those who typically worship at the 11 o'clock hour, well, my condolences. All right. I wish somewhere in the Pauline letters of Scripture there was a a prayer written that went something like this. I, and I thank my God always upon every remembrance of you, always making mention of you in my prayers, and especially for those who found their way to worship on the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. So, with that being said, it's New Year's Eve. It's a unique day. It's a time where inevitably, sometime before midnight, you're going to hear a song you may not recognize the name of it, but you'll hear the tune and maybe with different lyrics even. But it's called Old Lang Syne. Perhaps you know this song. Dun, 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 dun. Well, it's a Scottish poem written in 1799 by Robert Burns and put to music. It's had a few different renditions of musical score, but the one that's stuck is the one that we typically sing, but perhaps you don't know the words. The song itself, Old Lang Syne, the lyrics mean, means long since. It says, old long since is really what it means. And in, in, in our translation, it might mean the good old times, in years gone by. And it's a song of reflection. And New Year's Eve isn't just about New Year's resolutions. We're still in the year, and we're still looking and reflecting there's still the top 40 countdown of your favorite songs going on from the previous year. This is a day of reflection, and you'll hear it all over the place. Old Lang Syne is such a song of reflection. Here's the lyrics. And I'm very tempted, and I may even succumb. <laughs> Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? It's a rhetorical question. Should we forget the old acquaintances, and should they never be brought to mind? And he says it again, should old acquaintance be forgot? And old long sign, which means, should we forget our acquaintances and all the times gone by? Never! We shall not forget. And I'm very tempted just to yell out, freedom! But I won't, okay. <laughs> I'll just say the rest of this. He continues on in his reflections. He talks about him and a friend or a, an acquaintance of his. We too have run about the hills and picked the daisies fine. Speaking of reflections that are good and warm. He goes on, says, but we've wandered many weary foot and auld lang syne. So he focuses now on challenging challenging reflections over the years, the weary feet that they have walked. Continuing, Robert Burns says, we too have paddled in the stream from morning sun till dine. It's been a rewarding reflection, a hard-fought day, paddling from morning till dinner. And he goes on and he continues, but seas between us broad have roared. Since old Lang Syne, focusing in on the relational reflections of life and the distance that sometimes comes between us geographically, maybe even relationally and emotionally. It's a song of reflections, and the chorus goes on. For old Lang Syne, my dear, for old Lang Syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Syne. That cup of kindness, I'm pretty sure, was not and Arnold Palmer, okay? As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure this wasn't even written for Baptist ears. It's clearly a Presbyterian hymn, okay? But holidays are times of reflection, are they not? When we think of holidays, we think of anniversaries, we think of birthdays, special days, we think of the years gone by, the times gone since, and we do this. People, places, things are not forgotten in our special days, they are remembered. Today's a day of reflection. And we all have reflections. Perhaps some are in a posture of life right now to reflect longer and more freely than others who are more busied 
with life's provisionary activities. But regardless, reflections in our life, they tend to stir up the entire gamut of human emotions, don't they? When you think about what's gone on, sometimes they prompt laughter, sometimes they prompt sorrow. Sometimes it's joyful and, le and, and, and levity fills the room, and other times tears are in our hearts and eyes. Reflections. Reflections are usually connected to our relationships in this world, and I'm not sure on this day what emotions stir in you. Be they good, be they harsh. May the Lord have grace in this day, in your life. And I pray that the passage that we're going to look at today, which is a unique passage, that like today, which is sandwiched between the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, the passage that we're going to look at is sandwiched between the incarnation of Christ and Christ's earthly ministry. It really is the logical next passage to look at. It's the very next passage after we see Christ born, which we just celebrated last week. And today we're going to look at Matthew 2, 13 through 23. It's a passage of reflections in many regards, and more than reflecting on the activities of the Magi or Mary or Herod or Joseph or of Herod's successors, today's text is a reflection of the activity of God fulfilling scriptural prophecy. And when we look at this, we're not going to see first and foremost the reflections on human activity, but when we look at the reflections of God, who is the centerpiece of these passages, His fulfillment of His Word, what we're going to find in this is there are some very personal and practical qualities of God that appear. And it's my prayer that these become very practical and celebrated in our own hearts today as we look at God's Word. Would you look at Matthew chapter 2? Verses 13 through 23 with me. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Heavenly Father, as we look at this and these three prophecies that we see clearly fulfilled in this word fulfilled here, that, that it's your activity, may you be the center of our hearts and our lives as we look at this passage. May your rule and reign be manifested in us and through us as we see it very uniquely in these qualities that are manifested. As we reflect upon you, may we see your power and your strength and your glory in this passage, and may it work out through our lives. Lord, change us through your word today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So, 
As we look at this passage in the first stanza, we look at this and we see verses 13 through 15. And I'm going to fulfill a sentence today, an incomplete sentence through all of the points. You can fill these in in your bulletin if you so choose. But God's fulfillment of scriptural prophecy reflects several things. First, it reflects His strength to deliver us. His strength to deliver us. Right here at the very first phrase of this passage, we see these, these few words now, when they had departed. When we look at God's strength to deliver us, we're going to see that God delivers us in His timing first. We're going to see it's going to happen by His direction and with His means. So in God's timing, when we see this where it says, now when they had departed, we see an aspect of timing because this is linked to the wise men, the magi, who had just been there worshiping Jesus, giving provisional gifts to Jesus. Um, And so we see them, they had departed now. That was just in the very previous verse. So we see this dynamic at play. And by this time in Jesus' life, according to the harmony of the Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, several things had already occurred in the life of Christ. We see in his life there was a documentation already of the lineage of Christ's earthly parents. We've seen the conception of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist, the choosing of Christ's earthly mother, the immaculate conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit in Mary. We see the sovereign pairing of Christ's earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. We see Christ's pre-birth visit to his cousin John between Mary and Elizabeth. We see the angel's appearance to Christ's earthly father, Joseph. We also see Christ's parents, Mary and Joseph, obeying Roman law by traveling 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We see the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, by which we understand that the Word became flesh as Christ, that God became flesh as Christ, our Creator became flesh as Christ. We see the angelic announcement of Christ's birth to the shepherds, the worship of Christ by the shepherds. We see Christ's earthly parents obeying Jewish law, pertaining to the firstborn sons, being circumcision and presenting Christ to the Lord in the temple. We've also seen the worship of Christ by Simeon and Anna in Jerusalem. And we've seen the ill-motivated inquiry about Christ by Herod and brings us to this point. The provisional worship of Christ by the Magi and their departure. See, What we see here is in God's fulfilling a scriptural prophecy, we see his strength to deliver us that it happens in his timing. By this time, Christ himself is between 12 and 18 months old. And another piece of this, you might look at it and say that Joseph, it had been two years since the angel of the Lord in scripture had visited Joseph saying, don't be afraid that you will be the father of the Christ. You'll be the earthly father of the Christ who is going to be born through this woman Mary who's betrothed to you. And you should not be be afraid. You should go forward in this. Take her as your wife and you're going to call this son Jesus. He'll be the savior of the world. So it's been two years since the angel of the Lord first appeared to Joseph, roughly. And so he comes back and he visits Joseph through the angel of the Lord in a dream. And I think just that in itself. You know, in the mundane seasons of life, and you're wondering, all these things are happening in Joseph's life. They've been been relocated to another town, and things are going on. Lord, have you forgotten about me? Maybe that's a question on your heart. Lord, have you forgotten about me? Even Even in the mundane moments of life where we simply do not seem to hear and, and, and feel as if God is present, he does break into our lives and he speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. Here with, Jan- with, with Joseph, the angel of the Lord spoke to him through a dream and he said, rise and take his child and mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. See, what we see here is God is not just delivering Joseph in his timing, but he's doing it 
with his direction, by his direction. And God specifically tells Joseph in a dream to go to Egypt, to rise up in the middle of the night. Can you imagine the questions you would have as a father if you had a dream from the angel of the Lord in the middle of the night and you're told to completely uproot and move basically from Sioux Falls as far away as Wichita, Kansas? That's about the distance between Bethlehem and where they landed likely in, in Egypt. The questions you would have, what? How? How in the world is Herod's evil? I know Herod's evil, but how in the world is, is his evil action now focused in on our son, on our child, on Jesus? How is this happening? And, and you want me to go where? To Egypt? Well, how long is that going to take? And how do we get there? How, how will I provide for my family when I get there? You can just kind of read between some of this and, and see what a fatherly emotion might have been in the moment, what thoughts might have been going through his head. And then finally, in the middle of the night, Lord, we have relational connections in Bethlehem. Likely, he had many family members, but relational connections right there in Bethlehem. And, uh, and now they got to leave and just abandon this in the middle of the night? I don't even get to tell my loved ones or my relational connections that our son is in danger by Herod. Just imagine the thoughts. In all of this, we have no, we have no sign in any way that Joseph sinned. But I imagine very human thoughts are going through Joseph's mind. And nonetheless, in the middle of the night, scriptures record that we have, we have no reason to doubt that he didn't just get up and go. He went to Egypt. And when we look at Egypt, Egypt is a unique, a unique thing. You see, God sends Joseph to Egypt. And Joseph just simply up and obeyed. But, but Egypt's a unique posture right now. God's directions to Egypt... Are, uh, are, are unique. Because Egypt, right at this time, was, was very much a safe haven. So when God gives directions, what he's doing is he's also sending them to a place that's a safe haven. Egypt was only recently acquired into the Roman Empire. The Roman emperor himself had placed Gaius Tyrannius as the Roman prefect leading and governing Egypt. And Egypt was a very resource-rich region, and so the emperor himself sectioned it off with his own prefect so that it would be off-limits to all the other Roman senators, which uniquely made Egypt legally off-limits and beyond King Herod's interference. And so we have this Egypt dynamic, and we, we tend to see here from historical records that there were roughly 300,000, imagine the entire you know, the Sioux Falls metro area, the greater Sioux Empire, uh, the population of our area would be basically what the Jewish population was in the Alexandria region of Egypt at that time. So we sense that Joseph likely went in that direction because of the support he would have received near Alexandria. It's interesting in the scriptures, and though this is not the primary point of, this, of the text, I just want to make clear here, because sometimes we read in the New Testament where certain accounts don't line up. If you read Luke, Jesus was taken to the temple by Mary and Joseph. He was circumcised on the eighth day after her purification of 33 days had been fulfilled. Then they went to Jerusalem, presented Christ to the Lord at the temple, and presented a sacrifice. That's at day 33 of Christ's life. After that, we see Anna and we see Simeon worshiping the Lord. And the very, next, the very next verses after that say that they went to Nazareth, bypassing Egypt. Well, in, in Matthew's text, we don't see them going to Jerusalem. We see them in Bethlehem going to Egypt. So it's not a contradiction. Look at it more through the lens of that Luke and Matthew, their accounts are augmenting one another. Matthew often is referring to the lineage and the actions of Joseph, whereas Luke is often referring to the lineage and the actions of Mary and pertaining to Mary. So it makes sense that he would record they go back to Nazareth. That's where she's from. And it would make sense that that's not necessarily what's recorded in Matthew. But either way, it's not a contradiction. Think of your own life. If you were to have somebody say, hey, give me a brief history of your life. Here's what mine would be like. Well, I was raised in Iowa. I had various educational experiences in different places. I served on the mission field, pastored in Alaska, came to South Dakota, pastored, and now I'm serving in this role. Now, what you would never, ever have heard me say in the midst of all that doesn't mean it didn't happen. So in the midst of all of this, um, right after undergraduate, I spent and did 
hard time in West Texas. Okay. And all of my quirks and everything, you can blame on that. But I'm just kidding. There's a wonderful church. Before we were going to the mission field, the commissioning body of churches that commissioned us to the, to the mission field required that I would serve two years in pastoral ministry in a local church before going and planting churches overseas, which makes sense. Why would you go start an un, a, a church planting movement amongst an unreached tribe in the middle of Siberian Russia if you don't know how the local church works? And so they wanted practical experience. But I usually bypass Texas, usually for social benefit. I bypass Texas. I'm just kidding. We had a wonderful time in Texas. I'm just all tongue-in-cheek. But, uh, but I don't say everything. And I think it's really important in this passage, when you look at various contradictions like this between the Gospels, you're not going to see contradictions. Just realize there's a harmony there. They're augmenting one another. They're filling in each other's gaps. John 20, 21 states a verse that we would do well to remember here. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Many other things. So right here, the fact that Egypt is brought up in this passage and not in the passage of Luke, I would not pay more attention to that. But we see that God moves Joseph. He, he, he is strong to deliver in his timing with his means and also uh, by his direction, but with his means is right here where typically when we think of Egypt, we don't think of it as one of God's means. Typically when those who have read Scripture Old Testament or even heard songs sung about this, we think of Egypt in relationship to Israel as a place to run from. This is where Egypt and they, they held Israel and the children of Israel in captivity. Um, there was bondage there. There was slavery there. There were bad things that happened in Egypt to Israel. And so we often look at it as a place to come from. That's where Matthew writes, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And he is intentionally quoting the Hebrew text here. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son in, in Hosea 11.1. 1. And when he talks about that, he's leaning into the Old Testament realities where, where Moses says, or was, Moses records, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So we see this passage here where Matthew was talking about, I called my firstborn son, which was very important, especially in the world of Greek-speaking Jews who would have leaned into the Greek version of the Old Testament, which would have said, I called my children out of Egypt. So God uses his means. Egypt is typically a place that we run from, but consider this and how the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. It's also been, before it was a place to run from, it was a place to run to. If we think of, if we think of Egypt in that light, Remember when the sons of Jacob, Israel, sold Joseph into slavery. And remember where he began to rule. And remember where he rose to power, the second in power in the whole land. And remember to whom and where Israel ran to for comfort and support in times of famine. And we see that the Israelites ran to Egypt to get food when they were starving to get assistance when they were in great need, and they remained there. So in many regards, when we look at this, we see God doing this by his means. Egypt is the means of God as a place not only to come out from, but a place that to go to. So Christ is going to Egypt for safety, and he's coming out of Egypt like Israel because the Savior comes out of Egypt. And the word deliver, when God delivered the Israelites out of Israel, is very similar to the word save. In the, in the uh, New Testament Greek language, I won't go into it all, but it's the exact same word, the word deliverance and the word salvation. So very interesting that God delivered Christ out of Egypt, and he also saved Christ going into Egypt but all of this just to see that the fulfillment of scriptural prophecy is there through Christ and it reflects his strength 
and his strength to deliver us. Let me give you an application question in the midst of all of this. In what or whom are you trusting to deliver you? In what or whom are you trusting the Lord to deliver you? There are some people who may be here today who are in, who are in expressed and open need of various aspects of deliverance in life from various elements of pain, emotional, physical, needing, needing delivered from various aspects of bondage in life. And maybe it seems like it's all together, but I know behind the veneer, behind the veneer and behind the pleasantries, everybody has components of chaos in our lives that we would love to see just gone. How, how are we trusting the Lord? Or in whom or in what are you trusting to deliver you? It's a good application question that you can write down and meditate on today in this day of reflection. Next, we see God's fulfillment of scriptural prophecy reflects not only a strength to deliver us, but it also reflects his capacity to satisfy us, his capacity to satisfy us. He goes on into this next passage, and it says in verse 16 through 18, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When we see God's fulfillment of scriptural prophecy here, and we're going to see it reflects his capacity to satisfy. And I've chosen that word for a very specific reason, which we'll get to in just a moment. But when we see his, his ability to satisfy, what we are going to see in this passage first is that Herod was trying to satisfy his own desires through evil. This is a horrific, tragic passage. But I want to make it very clear here that though this happened in history, God is not the author of evil. The scriptures don't say a lot. They say some, and I'm going to read the passage. They don't always say a lot about the origins of where actually evil comes from. And the emphasis of scripture is not on that. The emphasis of scripture is what God does about evil. What does God do about evil? And right here, we're going to see one of the cornerstone verses of, of any hint of where evil comes from, where it says right there in, in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It's not on the screen, but just listen. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we see here God is not the author of evil. But Herod, following his own desires, and his desire was likely for control, ultimate control over a region. He may have had other motives in here too. Who knows what would have happened if a Messiah rose up and, and everybody began to follow him and it would just look like chaos in the Roman emperor's eyes. And, and then what would happen to Herod? Maybe he feared man, but he wanted to maintain an ultimate iron fist control over the situation. And he satisfied his own desire with evil. God was not the author of this, but we do see that God overcomes evil with his own goodness. When we look at this passage, though it speaks to children, I would just say it speaks to broken hearts. It speaks to hurting people. We need comfort because evil and real evil and pain exist in the world. Herod goes down and he slaughters the boys under two years of age in the Bethlehem region. According to historians, there's about a thousand people who lived in the region at that time. There would have been 20 to 40 young boys under the age of two who were killed and uh, likely others along with them who tried to get in the way of it. 
We're not sure how many total, but it was in that, it was in that context. And how many of us can not relate this circumstance to what we have all so tragically and, and, and gruesomely heard of and seen on TV and experienced, even in what has occurred on October 7th in Israel with the slaughter and the massacre of 1,269 Jews. Real evil exists in the world. I was in Ukraine at that time. And in Ukraine, bombs were falling all over. And, and yesterday was the strongest bombing um, to date in a two-year war now that took out well over 150 targets. Some of those were civilian hospitals, maternity wards. So, real evil exists in the world, and it's hard for us to deal with. Last week, Mike spoke, and he said that there would be peace on earth, and right now, he talked about a passage out of, out of Isaiah 11. Right now, he said that there are no less than 32 known wars going on in the world. Obviously, there are two of them, one in Israel, one in Ukraine, that are the forefront when I was in Ukraine, I received a video footage of a church that was bombed while I was there. I just want you to see this. Um, it's about a, and it's testimony of a pastor. Go ahead. Как я говорил, братья, это дом молитвы в городе Купинске, который вы некогда ремонтировали, разнесло все, все разнесло. Сейчас я постараюсь залезть сюда с Радину, чтобы вы это увидели, что здесь произошло за трагедия. Разбомбили все, все уничтожили, вы видите, все, все упало, все потолок, там в одном уголку крышу полностью снесло, вот это что они делали, нам освободители, вы видите, это дом, где славилось имя Господне, Братья здесь ставили двери, сейчас все развалили, развалили, разбомбили. Молитесь, братья, чтобы Господь дал силы все переносить. И самое важное, чтобы не было в сердце зла, хотя очень трудно сдержаться. We can look into this passage and we can see what happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Horrific. We can see what happened in Israel just two months ago. Horrific. We can see what's happening and happened in Ukraine just months ago as well and even, even on this very day. It's bad. But let's bring that a little closer home. Real evil exists in this world and it touches our lives. I just want to ask you a question. How many have a situation where evil has touched your life. How many? Perhaps that's a present tense reality in your life. Sin, in some form or fashion, the evil of sin has been imposed upon you. That doesn't make us any less of a sinner, any less in need of a, saint, of a savior. But when evil touches our lives, my word, my word, we need comforted. Consider the Ukrainian pastor's response here. He says this, And most of all, pray that we would not have evil in our hearts. Even though it is very hard to hold back. I'm blessed to have been sent by our district of churches. Our district of churches has raised nearly 350 50 going to, towards $400,000 for Ukraine relief and the planting. Now we're aiming at planting new churches and re, restoring churches that have been bombed and planting new ones because evangelism is so hot in the land of Ukraine right now and people are coming to faith by the droves that we are engaged in this. And so when I see this, I'm telling you, this Ukrainian pastor, what he says, and most of all, pray that we would not have evil in our hearts even though it is very hard to hold back. Here's what they're doing. They're overcoming evil with good and they're planting new churches. 
They're overcoming evil with good. And that's what I want to ask about, about our lives. See, God doesn't just comfort us. He, over, he overcomes evil with his goodness. He doesn't just comfort us. He is able to satisfy us. And the passage here talks about a scripture fulfilled from Jeremiah 31. And I want to read this over you to hurting hearts today. And I may not hold it together. I know what it's like to wake up year after year in the middle of the night with anxieties from pain, sins imposed. At all, sins imposed. I, I know what that's like. I don't know where you're at, what restlessness is in your heart, regardless of how we look on the exterior, regardless of how we come, up, come across to others. The trepidations on our heart, the loss that people experience and incur, I really want you just to sit back and let me read this over you as this passage he says that it would be fulfilled that Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That sounds horrible, but the context in which it is written in is so rich and so blessed and so life-giving. God sees this pain, and this is what he says around the context. And let me just say what he says around our context when we trust in the Lord, when we see him, just... Just let me read this over hurting hearts today. Hear the words of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrows. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. In the middle of all this, he reminds, he says, this, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. He continues, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back. There is a reward from, for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Let me just say this, there is hope for your future. There is reward for your work. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Oh, I pray that we can embrace this fulfillment through Christ and his prophecies. God's fulfillment of scriptural prophecy definitely, definitely reveals and reflects his capacity to satisfy us, not just to comfort us. Let me ask you this question. Here's the question number two for the end of this one. How am I being satisfied? How am I being satisfied? Sometimes we try to satisfy our anger with anger. And sometimes perpetual anger, if we're just honest about it, we realize it's a choice. It's a choice I'm choosing to make. How am I being satisfied? Let me submit to you that a really good choice would be to not be overcome with evil, but to be overcome evil with good, namely the goodness of God. We give you this last stanza here that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 2. We see that God's fulfillment of scriptural prophecy reflects his strength to deliver us, his capacity to satisfy us, and lastly, his foresight to direct us. But when Herod died, in verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to a dream in Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. 
For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me just say as God's fulfillment of a scriptural prophecy reflects his foresight to direct us, it's, it's comforting to know that God even sees and knows, he sees beyond life's end. Right here at the beginning of this last section, we see that Herod died. Herod was an exceptionally evil man, and according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, he died an exceptionally gruesome death that was long and it was drawn out. He had an untreatable kidney disease that was long and painful and drawn out, but also throughout his entire midsection, um, he died of a maggot-infested gangrene. Now, I promise you that phrase won't be repeated from the pulpit anytime soon. <laughs> maggot-infested gangrene. I guess some would wish that on this worst enemy. But uh, my word, but Herod, he was a piece of work. He was evil, evil, evil. And even on his deathbed, he, there were commands recorded that he commanded because he knew everybody hated him. But even on his deathbed, he wanted people to be in a posture of mourning even if they hated him. So he had imprisoned many Jewish elders. And upon his death, he, he commanded that they be executed so that people would be in a posture of mourning. That is evil. He also, he also executed one of his sons, Antipater. We'll talk about the other ones here in a moment. But this is evil, and God sees beyond life's end because when Herod died and all this evil had taken place and was, was done, that's when the angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph saying, rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. And it's safe to go back. It's important to recognize, though, that God directs us he has the foresight to direct us, but he doesn't do it all at once. He will often do this incrementally. So Joseph goes into Israel, and that's where he gets. It's safe to go back to Israel. But he, along the way, there's a new reality, a new governing reality in the land. And this governing reality is that the son, the evil son of, of Herod, is now ruling over the area of Judea. As a matter of fact, they didn't even give him the, the title king because he wasn't worthy of it. He had such a bad reputation, the same as his father, that there were many complaints that went out from that district, not just from the Jews, but from others, back to the Roman emperor. And after just a few years, they said, enough with Herod and his, his lineage. Let's get this son out of here. And what they did is they sent Archelaus all the way out to the far reaches of the Roman Empire into Spain, and they replaced him because he was so evil. But at this time, he was ruling over Judea, which is Jerusalem and Bethlehem area. And so we see that, that Joseph was warned in a dream, and he was afraid to go there. We'll talk a little bit about this. But instead, he, was, he went up into the district of Galilee, which was ruled by the softer son of Herod, Antipas. And so in this, it's interesting. We see that God is directing, sovereignly guiding Joseph to Nazareth. Joseph's natural inclination was not to go to Nazareth. It wasn't. He was headed back to Judea. As a matter of fact, he was on his way there, but he was afraid. He said he became afraid to go there. He became afraid because of Archelaus. But can you imagine the emotions of Joseph going back into Bethlehem? Here Mary and Joseph show up in Bethlehem with their young son, when all of his cousins and friends and kids his age had already been killed? Can you imagine what the parents looking at Mary and Joseph, you left in the middle of the night. We didn't know where you went. Did you know something? I can imagine word had gotten over through the Jewish world into Alexandria, Egypt. And I can imagine that there was great grief in Mary and Joseph's heart, especially Joseph. These were his kinsmen. What would he do? Maybe he felt like he needed to give some kind of some type of explanation as to what hand or what happened. I've lived enough in Eastern cultures to know that after death, the grieving with family members is a critical 
and very valuable, important part of the culture. So I can see where there, there, would, be, there would be this dynamic, a pull, even a painful pull back to Bethlehem on Joseph's heart. But he was afraid to go there, and God sovereignly places Archelaus in this place. God knows the future. He sees way around the corner. He is not responding to the plans or the whims of man. He has sovereignly put these things in place. Knowing Joseph, his heart would be to go back to his homeland, he redirects him to fulfill his own prophecy. And in this, we see the qualities of God reflected that he has the foresight to direct us. And so, with this direction, Joseph goes back. And it's not just that he has this type of foresight. God foresees, and he also defines significance. If you look right at the end of that passage, right at the end of it today, he says, God directed him. He's afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's a few things on this. The scripture that's fulfilled here is Isaiah 11.1. And it says this, there's no, there's no direct verse stating that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. There's, no, there's nothing that says that directly. However, there's a, there's a verse that is depicting this very scenario. And Isaiah 11.1 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now the shoot that's coming from the stump of Jesse is Jesus, the Messiah, the rod of Jesse. Literally, the shoot, the, the, the branch, the twig, the rod, the... It's coming out of Jesse. And then he goes on in that, in that verse, in that very verse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's Christ. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the branch coming out of this root is very intriguing. The branch from its root, literally in the Hebrew language, it comes across, and as we would pronounce it, natser. It's a natser. Or a green twig like those found on the shrub trees around the Sea of Galilee, after which Nazareth was named. <laughs> Nazareth. Jesus Christ is the fruit that comes from Nazareth. See, no one saw the significance of this little town. No one saw the significance of these twigs and these shrub type of growths that would grow around the Sea of Galilee or be common to this town of Nazareth. No one, no one saw the significance of lowly Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But then again, no one expected the king of kings to be gentle and lowly, let alone born in a manger. Let me finish out that prophecy as it's fulfilled and we can see and reflect on God's qualities here. We see Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth, not with the swords and shields and horses and chariots. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. <laughs> Nazareth. Little lowly, insignificant Nazareth. What we see here clearly is that God has the foresight to direct us and he even directs the, what things are significant and insignificant in this world. So here's the question that we would have. that You can write this down if you want and meditate on it. How am I trusting God to direct my life? 
And in Joseph, how is he trusting God to direct him back, even through questionable lands and circumstances that he doesn't fully understand? How is he trusting God to direct his life? Further on, how is God, how are we trusting God to direct our families? How are we trusting God to direct our children in their careers? Maybe even their callings to follow the Lord into some aspect of gospel ministry. How are we trusting the Lord to direct our affairs? What we find here is God's fulfillment of scriptural prophecy reflects God's strength to deliver you, to deliver us. It reflects God's capacity to satisfy you. And it reflects God's foresight to direct you. As we enter into a new year, let's just simply remember that God does not forget us. That his ongoing fulfillment of his will continually reflects his qualities. As with Joseph, may God grant us all the grace to follow the Lord's promptings in every circumstance. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that you have the strength to deliver alone through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for that, but also through the wisdom and the guidance and the conviction and the leading of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you, you deliver us from innumerable circumstances that could get us into painful circumstances. And you deliver us through your grace, through your mercy, from great and painful circumstances, Lord, that, that have been unjustly even imposed upon us. So, Lord, we thank you that you have the strength to deliver. We thank you, Lord, that you don't just have the strength to deliver, but you have the capacity to satisfy us. You can grant us comfort, but you, you go beyond that and you satisfy us with your goodness, Lord, that there's a hope for the future. We thank you that you do satisfy. And Lord, may our satisfaction be sought and found in you and you alone. And Lord, we thank you that you grant foresight and you have the foresight to direct us Lord, we thank you for this example in the scriptures fulfilled in that Christ was going back to Nazareth because he would become out and come out of Nazareth. And sometimes seemingly the insignificant things in our lives, Lord, are the greatest direction that you grant us. So we thank you for these pictures that, that of your qualities that are so real and can be so related and so personal to our lives. Lord, I ask for nothing more today that in each of our lives, that you would grant us the graces with Joseph, that we would just simply follow the promptings of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. Be pleased in our obedience to you. In Christ's name we pray.